Welcome everyone to the December episode of the CNS Journal Club podcast. I'm uh, Jeffrey Trailer. I'm a PGY3 resident here at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I'm joined here with our guest faculty as well as our uh, authors. And today we'll be discussing uh, the study Concurrent Administration of Immune Checkpoint Inhibitors and Stereotactic Radiosurgery is well tolerated in patients with melanoma brain metastases, an international multicenter study of 203 patients. So I have the privilege here of being joined by two of the authors from that paper, as well as our guest faculty. And so we'll start off with some introductions. Um, Dr. Patel, would you mind introducing yourself for the listeners? Yeah, thanks very much for this opportunity. My name is Toral Patel. I'm a neurosurgical oncologist at UT Southwestern. I'm an associate professor of neurosurgery and director of the UT Southwestern Brain Tumor Program. Wonderful. And Drs. Uh, Lehrer and Trifoletti, we'll start with you, Dr. Lehrer. Hi, well, thank you for having me this evening. Uh, my name is Eric Lehrer. I'm a PGY5 chief resident at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. And last but not least, Dr. Trifoletti, would you mind introducing yourself for us? Yeah, I'm Dan Trifoletti. I'm a radiation oncologist. I'm at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much for joining with us today. I think we're going to have a good discussion. Um, Doctors Lehrer or Trifoletti, however you'd like to, to split it, how, uh, how about you just start us off with a summary of this work uh, before we start getting into questions? Sure, yeah, I, I could do that. Um, so this was a multi, this was a multi-center retrospective analysis. Um, we conducted it through the International Radio Surgery Research Foundation. And we looked at a subset of patients with melanoma brain metastases who were treated with stereotactic radiosurgery uh, and with immune checkpoint inhibitors. So we had a total of 203 patients. There were roughly 1,400 brain metastases. 11, interna uh, 11 international institutions in four countries provided data. Median follow-up was 15.6 months. And what the goal of the study was we wanted to look at, we wanted to characterize the risk of radiation necrosis, both symptomatic, both um, any grade and symptomatic radiation necrosis by therapy timing, meaning the um, amount of time between checkpoint inhibitor and radiosurgery administration. So we looked at that by comparing concurrent to non-concurrent therapy. So in line with previous literature, and I'm sure we'll get into this a bit, we defined concurrent administration as um, administration of radiosurgery and checkpoint inhibitors within four weeks of one another. Um, on the multivariable analysis for any greater radionecrosis, so anything from symptomatic to pathologically confirmed necrosis, we saw that patients with a V12 greater than 10 cc's, including the target volume, the presence of a BRAF mutation, and prior whole brain radiotherapy were actually associated with an increased risk of developing radionecrosis. Um, when looking at just the symptomatic patients, the V12 greater than 10 cc's was still was still a predictor, and as was a BRAF mutation, but whole brain was no uh, whole brain radiotherapy no longer was. Um, so we didn't see any increased risk of, of um, in, of any gray radio necrosis or symptomatic necrosis in patients who received concurrent therapy versus non-concurrent therapy. Yeah, and I'll just add that, you know, the, the context for this for people who aren't following the radio surgery literature closely is that uh, stereotactic radio surgery has a long track record of, of safety and efficacy in the setting of brain metastases, but advancements in drug therapy, specifically immunotherapy uh, and the more common use of it over the past uh, 10 years really have, have called into question the safety and potentially that when administered 
with radiosurgery, uh, the risk of radionecrosis or symptomatic peritumoral edema following radiosurgery, radiosurgery could be increased. And there's been a few reports uh, in that regard. So this effort was a collaborative effort uh, across several institutions throughout the world through the Radiosurgery Research Foundation to um, enumerate that risk and, and to look to see if there's predictors uh, and, that, and how real it is. We chose melanoma specifically because immunotherapy is, is commonly indicated in that condition uh, with current guidelines. Wonderful, thank you both so much for that uh, wonderful summary. Um, Dr. Patel, did you wanna start us off with some questions so we can get a discussion going? Yes, I'd love to, thank you. Thank you again for the opportunity. Uh, Eric and Dan, I thought this paper was really fantastic and, and answered some very important questions uh, for modern uh, practice radiosurgery and, and modern cancer care. I uh, sort of had a lot of interest in the fact that V12 over 10 cubic centimeters was a significant predictor um, for uh, increased risk of radionecrosis. Certainly, um, we sort of have that flavor and knowledge uh, when we're doing radiosurgery in general, but it was nice to see that uh, numerated in this manuscript. What do you guys um, think about the role of either hypofractionation or neoadjuvant SRS as a mitigation strategy for lesions in which you know that the V12 is going to be greater than 10 cubic centimeters with, with a single fraction approach? Sure, that's a great question. And uh, thank you uh, for your kind words. I, I'm really nice to hear you enjoyed our paper. So, you know, in terms of you know, hypofractionated radiosurgery, multifraction SRS is an excellent mitigation strategy, particularly for larger lesions. Um, you know, and in my institution, we commonly will do 27 gray and three fractions. That's probably been the most well-validated um, fractionation scheme. You know, the two Miniti papers out of Italy uh, in both the intact and the uh, adjuvant setting. And sometimes we'll do uh, 30 gray and five fractions as well if the lesion is a little bit larger, if there's a lot of edema, if it's located in a um, eloquent location. Um, that's also an excellent approach. Um, I know, I think the Alliance trial, and they're looking at post-operative cavities, it's using those two fractionation schemes. I think, I think Dan could probably confirm it. I think Mayo's actually opening up something looking at fractionated radiosurgery for intact um, lesions. Um, in terms of pre-op SRS, I know Dan's the expert in, in that, um, but I'll say briefly, you know, I think it, it has a lot of promise. The data are very strong, suggesting that have shown actually that the local control is compar comparable to post-operative therapy. You have a lower rate of nodular leptomeningeal disease. Um, it's also easier from a technical standpoint to target an intact lesion versus a CTV when you're dealing with a resection cavity, how much of the how much of the, the tract to include, how much of the adjacent dura to include. Um, things like that. Also, you have to worry about things like cavity dynamics. So I, I think both are, are appropriate, um, are definitely uh, appropriate uh, mitigation techniques. Yeah, I mean, even you asking those questions got me excited about, about the future of radiosurgery um, for, for these complex situations. You know, I, I think that hypofractionated radiosurgery and, and uh, neoadjuvant or preoperative radiosurgery are both super promising opportunities to improve tumor control and reduce side effects. A challenge that we currently have is, is when to use it. And there's several studies in this space. So at, at Mayo, we have uh, two randomized trials that are open on each of those questions. 
So uh, single versus hypofractionated radiosurgery for like big-ish tumors, you know, uh, over two centimeters. Um, and also preoperative versus postoperative radiosurgery. There, there are several other groups doing this. I know um, Anderson, MD Anderson has some trials open, and then the NRG has just opened a trial uh, for preoperative versus postoperative, which should be considered um, at, at institutions of those people listening. But a, a challenge, you know, if it is shown to be better, the nice thing about single fraction radiosurgery is that, as you mentioned, V12 is, is a really well established metric for radionecrosis. It's been well tested. It's very common in the literature. We don't have similarly robust metrics for hypofractionated or preoperative radiosurgery. One, like one good question is, you know, what's the right dose to treat a preoperative brain tumor with, with radiosurgery? Um, in the existing literature, uh, Eric also mentioned that eloquent brain location um, may be a factor that helps us push us one way or the other, and it should, although that's not as well delineated or measured um, in the existing literature. And specifically, you know, the way we calculate V12 can sometimes include the calvarium, uh, you know, the volume of the calvarium receiving 12 grade, depending on the, the metric you're using to measure it by. So there's a lot of room for improvement in, in how we're even measuring um, B12 specifically, and then how it applies to these other uh, fractionation schemes and, and treatment strategies. But uh, it's super exciting as an open area for research to, to improve the care for future patients. Awesome, wonderful. Um, I'll shift gears a little bit. I hate to <laughs> do that, but we have a limited amount of time. Um, I uh, read with interest, you know, that 10 to 15% of the patients uh, in this cohort had uh, some type of radionecrosis, whether it was symptomatic or not. And uh, so that's a relatively robust sample size. And review of the literature shows that some patients who experience these transient increases in lesion size actually do better in the long term. And everybody's sort of wringing their hands when the MRI looks a little funny at six months or nine months or 10 months. Um, but if the patient can get over that hump, um, there's literature to say that those are the ones that that perhaps in fact do better. And maybe it's because that uh, pseudo progression or transient lesion uh, change is because of some inflammatory uh, infiltrate that suggests that the immunotherapy is quote unquote working. Um, and so I wonder what you guys uh, think about that and having seen that in a reasonable uh, percentage of your cohort, do you have any sense for how the survival was for those patients versus the rest? I realize this, this study wasn't targeted towards that, but maybe you saw that data in the background. So um, that's a really, this actually, this is a topic that's very um, near to mine and, uh, and Dan's hearts. So we didn't look at survival based on the, um, whether the, comparing the radionecrosis cohort to the non-radionecrosis group. Um, but ju just a couple of points about that. So it's incredible. So the vast majority of these cases were imaging defying radionecrosis, which is an incredibly difficult and heterogeneous uh, endpoint to measure. Um, you know, there certainly are MRI findings, like a tumor board will often hear the neuroradiologist refer to things like a soap bubble appearance or perilesional edema, but none of them are really very specific. So, you know, it's very hard to elucidate what exactly these imaging defined necrosis cases are, and they make up the vast majority of the patients. But I know this isn't the, the focus of this talk. We recently published another paper um, looking at melanoma, non-small cell and renal cell patients. And when we compared um, and these are all imaging defined necrosis cases. And when we compared the survival, the patients who 
develop a imaging defined necrosis event actually had a, a six month longer survival. You know, I personally don't know I, 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 if survival is necessarily longer. I mean, I don't know if this is the best data set to say that for sure. It might be a little bit challenging, but I think what it does show, what the bigger message is that this is a very hard endpoint to measure, particularly in the setting of modern systemic therapies. So we need to find better, you know, radio tracers and other imaging modality, modalities to actually determine what's going on and if this is actually true necrosis or just a sign of a better systemic response to immunotherapy and radiosurgery. Perfect. Keeping on that uh, survival theme, uh, your manuscript showed that there was better overall survival for patients who received concurrent ipinevo, um, and and I assume that the mechanism is believed to be some increased anti-tumor immunity uh, from that combination therapy that was delivered concurrently with radiation, that there's some synergy there. Um, but besides sort of that logical assumption, uh, is there a biomarker that can be assayed to quantify this? Is there a biomarker that's under investigation for us to quantify this in the future? Um, something beyond sort of logic to say how robust a patient's immune response is to ipinevo and what we might anticipate their brain activity to be. So I know there's a lot of research going on now looking at tumor mutational burden, um, you know, DNA repair pathway biomarkers, those are presently being investigated. Um, particular actual, like a biomarker that's been well validated. I don't believe there is one particularly, you know, that we use in this setting. Um, particularly, in, you know, within the brain, which is, you know, I think we'd all agree the brain is a bit you know, more unique than the rest of the body. But it's a great point. We certainly do need biomarkers to actually determine if we're actually enhancing the anti, you know, the tumor, um, if we're actually priming anti-tumor immunity in response to these two therapies. Yeah, I think um, functionally for those in the clinic, you know, PD-1, PD-L1 is probably the best thing we have now. And that's probably pretty good, but there's plenty of room for improvement from there. Perfect. Um, I read with interest that on uh, the univariate analysis, uh, those who received IPI monotherapy had an increased risk of radiation necrosis, while those who had combo ipinevo had a lower risk of radiation necrosis. I found that slightly curious, but I wonder if that's because there was a dosing difference between the ipi monotherapy cohort and the ipinevo combo cohort. I don't know if this um, study had the granularity to understand if there were dosing differences. I realize that it's hard to dig through oncology charts and figure that out at every uh, point in treatment for patients. Um, but I wonder if you do know any of that data or, or if it is simply, yeah, it's, it's a black box. <laughs> So that, no, that's, that's a great question. So this actually, so no, we don't have that, you know, that level of granularity of the data, but I do, I do believe I would have, I would, I would have to double check. I don't think we didn't see an overall dosing difference between the arms, um, the concurrent and non-concurrent. We didn't look at it by checkpoint inhibitor agent used. However, you know, the, what we think, and this actually ties into one of the findings that I, I thought were very interesting was this BRAF, the um, interaction with the BRAF mutate, you know, the role of the BRAF mutation, um, what we observed in our outcome. So there, there might be a little bit of confounding going on. So we actually saw that the BRAF mutant patients, I know we're going to get into this a bit, they had a higher rate of necrosis. And in the ipinevo arm, um, there were actually um, more, there were more BRAF mutant patients in the ipi monotherapy arm than in the combo therapy arm. So what we actually might be seeing is the effect of the BRAF mutation. It's a possibility. 
Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. And it is a great segue into my final question, which is, although not the, not the main focus of this manuscript clearly builds on this idea of how do we time targeted therapies, immunotherapies effectively with SRS. And, um, and although uh, you didn't have perfect data about whether patients were on BRAF inhibitors or not during the time of their radiosurgery, there was some inference made based on their BRAF mutation status. Um, and that is a nice explanation for why if the IPI monotherapy arm had more BRAF mutant patients that they may have been on BRAF inhibitors at, around the time of radiosurgery. And so can you comment on what is your, um, Eric Dan, personal belief about BRAF inhibition and timing of SRS? Is there something that this audience can sort of take home as a salient point on that? So that's a, that's a great point. I, I you know, want to hear what Dan thinks as well. Um, so, you know, th there's been a few studies done out of the Cleveland Clinic that actually do show about five or six years ago that, um, you know, when anti-BRAF agents are given, you know, concurrently with radiosurgery, there's higher rates of radionecrosis. And I think they also saw that um, by holding the BRAF, and I'd have to double check, but I think they, they didn't see a worsening in outcomes if they were to hold the BRAF uh, agent for a prolonged period of time. At my institution, when we have patients with, so, you know, a lot of these patients with B, that are on anti-BRAF agents are now being observed. Um, so we're not seeing as many of them, but when we do, I would say we typically will hold their therapy probably for about a week. Um, that's typically what we do where I am. I, I don't, um, that's just our experience. Yeah. Um, you know, similar. I think it, it probably is more pertinent for um, whole brain radiotherapy in patients with uh, combination BRAF inhibitors, but for radiosurgery, you know, the I think the, um, the European group came out with a consensus statement to hold it for a day for safety, but it wasn't based in particularly strong uh, data. You know, I, in my mind, this question really um, personifies a problem that we have in the like modern radiosurgery clinic, which is you know, the, the drugs and the targeted agents are coming out faster than we can study them well. And if, you know, it's not being done prospectively and then the, the drug's approved and then it's used quickly and it should be. And then we're kind of left to decide how to manage these brain mets. More is more. And so more treatment is gonna cause more risk, um, particularly when there's synergy between the therapies. So I think, you know, it, it's a challenging decision to make, and it's a challenging decision to be left in the hands of, of medical oncologists alone, and really re requires, you know, brain-directed experts who can say that's in a, you know, a high-risk lesion for these reasons, or a, or a low-risk lesion for these reasons, and that could be treated with drug therapy alone, or that should be treated with radiosurgery, or, or maybe these tumors should be treated with radiosurgery, but not those. That, that kind of, like, sort of a faux pas thing to do in brain tumor management, uh, at least on the, in the radiation oncology world, you know, to treat some of some, but not all of the tumors. But that sort of thinking is, is, you know, it's what I would want if I was a patient, you know, treat my two centimeter, three centimeter tumor, but let's watch the other ones on drug therapy and see what happens. I think that that, that kind of thinking makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but it's just not really what we do for historic reasons. And so the, the challenge that I have is, is you know, we're never going to know. We're never going to have a prospective randomized studies, you know, to evaluate the timing of these, you know, sort of 
esoteric um, targeted agents in, in these diseases, it's just not gonna happen. And so we're kind of left as clinicians to, to use our best judgment. And, and you know, that's kind of the art of medicine um, and, and why what we're doing is different than just reading the NCCN guidelines or, or you know, textbooks. So um, to answer your question, I think the risk is probably more uh, and it's believable that it's more, um, but in, you know, people with expertise uh, on this topic and expertise in with neuroanatomy and, and multidisciplinary teamwork, there's a, there's an opportunity to, to be sort of appropriately aggressive and take calculated risks in a way that's meaningful to patients and helpful to them in, in a context where we'll never have all the perfect answers. I wanted to follow up on the discussion of BRAF inhibitors, BRAF mutations specifically. Um, I know that your study found an increased risk of radiation necrosis in patients that received concurrent radiosurgery and, and BRAF inhibitors, and yours isn't the first study to, to reflect this. Um, do you have any explanation for why this might be the case? So we had a couple of hypotheses, uh, hypotheses for this. So the first, you know, these BRAF mutant melanoma patients, they are on targeted agents. These are relatively effective therapies. So What's possible is that some of the, unfortunately, we didn't have data giving uh, providing info on non-checkpoint inhibitor systemic therapies. We do mention that as a limitation. So it's possible that some of these patients were on anti-BRAF agents and then switched to checkpoint inhibitors, and perhaps this could be related to a washout period between switching systemic agents and performing radiosurgery. But it's, it's a little hard to validate that further because we don't have, um, we weren't able to collect data regarding anti-BRAF agent use. We saw in another study that we did that the patients who develop these imaging-defined necrosis changes actually do better. They tend to live longer, um, which is what we saw in our data set. So it just shows that, you know, our fine, um, you know, this imaging-defined radio necrosis endpoint is a very challenging thing to measure, and we need better technologies to actually measure that. So I know one thing, I think Dan has a trial open now looking at encyclopedia PET, PET CTs to differentiate pseudo, to differentiate progression from radionecrosis. So it's definitely something we need to look into further. Thank you. Um, my next question sort of goes more towards the, the design of the study um, and specifically why was there a delayed uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor group uh, greater than four weeks versus concurrent uh, uh, radio surgery administration? Why was there delayed versus concurrent? Sure. So that, that was in line with, a, there's been several reports published over the years that have actually suggested that in patients who receive concurrent therapy, which is within that four-week window, that they do better, that they have better local controls, sometimes have better survival. They often have better out-of-field or distant brain control. But the concern is that when those therapies are given so close together, that it increases the risk of radionecrosis. So studies have shown the Harvard group published a great paper several years ago, comparing an SRS checkpoint inhibitor group to SRS alone. Uh, they didn't look at timing, but they, they showed that there was a, a much higher risk of developing symptomatic necrosis for melanoma brain meds in patients who get um, SRS and checkpoint inhibitors. So what we wanted to do, the question was if we, we want to certainly give, you know, we want the patients to have the best possible outcome. And in line with that, give the therapy within four weeks of one another, but at the same time, minimize the risk of tumor-related toxicity, which in this case would be the radio necrosis. So that's why we wanted to look at that four-week window. And to dovetail onto that, uh, do you have any explanation as 
as to why there was a difference in survival between those two arms in the study? So great question. So it was it wasn't exactly significant, but I would argue clinically very meaningful. The, I remember the p value I think was zero point zero five one, and it was um, thirty six months versus you know almost twenty months. So, you know, some people some people will argue that you know sometimes you see a difference on some of these smaller studies because patients who get concurrent therapy probably have a better performance status. They have fewer comorbidities. There's less of a competing risk of death. But we actually didn't see that. Um, you know, the median KPS was 90 for both arms and the interquartile range is the same. So one explanation, you know, this is in line with other previous reports. This is a much larger series, but one prevailing theory is that the reason that patients tend to do better when giving the checkpoint inhibitor and radiosurgery within four weeks of one another is that it allows for enhanced anti-tumor immune responses against the tumor. And it allows for a more robust systemic response and a better way and a stronger way to fight off the, fight the disease. And control the disease. So we think that might be a possibility. So it's possibly related to immunogenic modulation. I see. Thank you very much. Um, well, I think we're coming up on our time here. Um, I want to thank uh, all of our guest authors for taking the time out of their schedules to come and, and talk about their paper here, as well as uh, Dr. Patel uh, for coming and uh, providing her expertise as our guest faculty um, I want to remind everyone that this event is worth 1.5 CME. It's complimentary for all CNS members. And as always, this podcast will be available at cns.org. Uh, and again, this is the episode for the month of December. Um, and I think that's all I have. Thank you all again very much. And we'll see you next month.